Back in the early 70s, the Wall Street Journal had an advertising campaign that's still to this day considered to be one of the most successful ever engaged. It was a direct mail thing, and they sent out letters. And in direct mail marketing, it's still considered to be legend, what they were able to accomplish. Uh, it, variations on, on their uh, ad campaign and just straight rip-offs are still common in direct mail marketing. Here's the way it went. I'm going to read this to you and see if you get the gist of what they're saying. Here, here, here was a letter sent out to various individuals by the Wall Street Journal. Dear reader, on a beautiful late spring afternoon, 25 years ago, two young men graduated from the same college. They were very much alike, these two men. Both had been better than average students. Both were personable. And both, as young college graduates, are filled with ambitious dreams for the future. Recently, these two men returned to college for their 25th anniversary reunion. They're still very much alike. Both were happily married. Both had three kids. And it turned out, both had gone to work for the same Midwestern manufacturing company after graduation, and they're still there. But there was a difference. One of the men was a manager of a small department of that company. The other was its president. Have you ever wondered, as I have, what makes this kind of difference in people's lives? It isn't always a native intelligence or talent or dedication. It isn't that one person wants success and the other doesn't. The difference lies in what each person knows and how he or she makes use of that knowledge. And that's why I'm writing to you and to people like you about the Wall Street Journal. For that is the whole purpose of the journal, to give its readers knowledge and knowledge they can use in business. Well, it turns out that that ad campaign for the Wall Street Journal is credited with generating an estimated $2 billion worth of income for that newspaper. But did you get the idea? Two men. Contrasting two men. And in this instance, the difference between the two men was one subscribed to the Wall Street Journal and the other one didn't. You get that? But the idea was two men, contrasting two men, what can you learn from their stories? Well, the Wall Street Journal did not invent the two-man concept. In fact, I would argue that the, the most famous user of the two-man concept was Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, uh, there are multiple examples of Jesus using a contrast between two different individuals to drive home a point and to show what we ought to be doing. And for a few minutes this morning, we want to use that as the basis of our study. We want to look at some of the examples of Jesus using the two-man concept. The Wall Street Journal didn't invent that idea. Jesus used it commonly in his teaching, and it's a powerful teaching methodology, as I hope we'll see when we look at a few examples here in just a minute. Let's stop for just an instant to say thank you for being here. Join with Lee in welcoming everyone to the services this morning. We're grateful for your presence, glad you're here. We always draw encouragement from one another, and uh, that is true today for sure. We're glad that you're here to be a part of these services. Our primary goal is to bring honor and glory to our Father in heaven. That's what this is all about. Uh, and we hope certainly we'll, we will accomplish that. We think we do that by worshiping him and serving him in accordance with his will. But we also want to be encouraged and edified ourselves, and we hope we can do that too. If you have any questions from, about anything you see or hear this morning, please bring them to our attention. We'd be glad to sit down and study with you about any Bible question. Let us know how we can help. Let's talk about the two-man concept. 
what can we learn from some examples of Jesus using the two-man concept? The first one is the one that Garrett read to us just a little bit ago from Luke chapter 18, the famous parable that Jesus told about the, the publican and the Pharisee. In Luke 18, read with one more time, beginning verse 9. He spake a parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I think when we first read that parable, perhaps we're tempted to think that Jesus was just teaching the parable to expose how horrible the Pharisees were. Those Pharisees, they sure were terrible people, weren't they? Is that the purpose of this parable? Well, really, no. Jesus explains, or the explanation is offered as to why Jesus spoke the parable when it said he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And so, yeah, we learn something about the Pharisees in this parable, but the question is, do we learn the lesson? What about us? Do we trust in ourselves and in our own righteousness? Do we sort of justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people and say, you know, I'm not so bad because there are a lot of people in the world who are a whole lot worse than I am and therefore since there are worse people than me, I must be doing okay. We just justify ourselves and our righteousness in comparison and we despise others, you know. Uh, by the way, we have this holier-than-thou disposition about us. I'm better than they are, and therefore I must be okay. We want to be on guard against that kind of thinking, obviously. And that's the point of the parable that Jesus taught about the publican and the Pharisee. So two men are contrasted here. One was humble uh, and admitted his sinfulness. Jesus said that that one, the public one, was the one who was justified rather than the self-righteous Pharisee who only bragged upon his own religious accomplishment. Which of those two men do you want to be like? Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? The two-man concept there really drives the point home. Clearly, the point of that parable is the need for humility. All of us need to humbly acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness, come to God seeking salvation, although we understand we don't deserve it. We need that sort of humility. And that two-man story of the publican and the Pharisee certainly teaches the lesson. Look at another one. We could talk about a father and his two sons. The one I have in mind is told in Matthew chapter 21, beginning verse 28. What think ye, Jesus said? A certain man had two sons, and, they, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither of them twain did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Verily I say to you that the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him." Again here, we see a contrast, don't we? In this instance, these two sons are contrasted. 
get the story. Very easy to see. Well, one of the great values of this sort of teaching by Jesus is you can get a mental picture of this just instantly. It's not hard to comprehend. And we believe that's what made Jesus certainly de- deserve the title of Master Teacher. He could put great moral lessons in terms that everybody could grasp. You see this story, don't you? Here's two sons. And he tells the first son, go work in my vineyard. And the son immediately says, I'm not going. But he changes his mind. He repents and he goes. Which, by the way, is a good picture of repentance. He changed his mind and he changed his actions. The other one said, oh yeah, I'll go. But he didn't go. Now think about that. Again, Jesus explains the application. Uh, some even terrible sinful people will be saved because they repent and change their actions. Many are going to be lost because of rebellion, like the son who said, I'll go, but he doesn't go. I want you to notice that act of rebellion. That The son who said, I go, sir, and went not. I would call that an act of rebellion, but you know, oftentimes we think of rebellion as being just real disrespectful uh, kind of conduct. Maybe someone who uses harsh or mean words or disrespectful words. That wasn't the case with that son. He said, yeah, I'll go. He just didn't do what he said he was going to do. And that's an act of rebellion. We need to understand that we're rebelling against God when we know what we're supposed to do and when we even indicate that we intend to do it, but we never follow through. That's the rebellious son here. The rebellious son is the one who said he was going to do it and didn't do it. What about us? Are we in that, are we in that condition of rebellion or are we willing to repent? That story of the father and the two sons is a lesson about repentance versus rebellion. What situation are you in this morning? Have you repented? Will you come to God humbly seeking His uh, forgiveness? Or are you of the rebellious nature who says, hey, I, know what, I know what He told me to do. I'm just not doing it. What about that? We can learn the story of the father and his two sons. Another two-man story Jesus told was a story of two debtors. In Luke chapter 7, verse 41, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? This one's easy to understand, isn't it? And the idea of it is, whoever is forgiven of more is more grateful for what he has been forgiven. A pence or a penny or a denarius here. Notice the one owed 500 pence and the other owed 50. Well, a pence or a penny or a denarius of that day was the, was the wage, a daily wage for a common working man. If you were a common laborer, worker in those days, you would expect to be paid a penny or a pence or the actual word is a denarius. That's how much you would expect to get for a day's work. Well, look at that. The one guy owed 500 days worth of work. Well, that's almost two years, right? I mean, he's going to have to work every day and give everything he makes for almost two years to get out of debt. The other guy owes 50. Well, 50 days of labor, maybe two months, you know. He he can work himself out of debt maybe in two months' time. So one owes a lot, the other doesn't owe near so much. Which one's going to be more grateful when he is forgiven? Well, the one who has been forgiven of more. Now, where do you see yourself in that picture? Are you the 500 
pence man or the 50? Well, actually, we're the 500 pence man, right? We have been forgiven. Actually, we owe more than that. Uh, we couldn't work ourselves out of the spiritual debt we're in in two years or 200 years. We are in an, we are in a situation where we just simply can't get out of debt. The debt of sin is so great, we can't get out unless some provision is made by the one to whom we owe the debt, God Himself, and He has made that provision. We need to see ourselves as that 500 pence man. We need to be so grateful. For those of us who are Christians who have been forgiven, we need to be so grateful for what God has done for us. The story of those two debtors is certainly a story about gratitude for forgiveness, and we should be so grateful. Never spend a day without thanking God for what He has made possible for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Be grateful always for the great salvation God has made available through His Son. But you see that two-man story there. And again, I think when you use that kind of concept, it's so easy to get the point. Uh, Jesus used it effectively a lot. Here's another one. Jesus talked about a wise versus a foolish builder. You know this story. Our kids study it in their classes. Matthew 7, beginning verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these things of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The wise builder versus the foolish builder. What about that foolish builder? I'm telling you, that guy was a real idiot, wasn't he? I mean, come on. Anybody ought to know better than to build your house on sand. You know, you got to know that if you're building a house, you've got to have a good, firm foundation under it or it's not going to endure. Right? Anybody should have known better than that guy. Well, we can all see that in the picture that Jesus paints there with his words. But get the, get the point. The point of it is not just about building a house in the sand. The point of it is, who hears these sayings of mine and doeth them not is just as foolish as a man who builds his house upon the sand. That's the foolish man that Jesus was talking about, is the one who does not do what he knows he's been instructed to do. Uh, you might be like that foolish man. If you understand what God expects you to do and you're not doing it, uh, in, in fact, you are in a far more dangerous situation because it involves your soul and eternity. If you have heard the sayings of Jesus Christ, if you understand His instructions and you're not doing them, then you're like that foolish man who built his house upon the sand. So two men are contrasted there. And, and again, we are expected to decide of the two, which one are we going to be like? We're going to be like the wise builder or the foolish builder. So the wise and foolish builder, lessons in wisdom and obedience, certainly. And we can get it so easy. We can get it. Let me give you another one. And, and you might have a quick quibble with me about the next one I want to suggest to you. The story of the Good Samaritan. Well, in the story, the good, the story of the Good Samaritan involves three men, right? There was the priest and the Levite and the Good Samaritan. I want to suggest to you that there's two types of men described there. There's actually three individuals, but there's two types of men. Uh, and it has to do with whether or not we're willing to get involved to do what needs to be done. You know the story. 
Luke chapter 10, beginning verse 30. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. We've often pointed out that the priest and the Levite were among the really religious people of that day. But even though they were outwardly religious, inwardly they had no compassion and no desire to get involved, to sort of get their own hands dirty, doing something that needed to be done. In contrast to them, the Good Samaritan was one who was really involved, who went above and beyond what someone might expect to help this man who was a total stranger to him. And so again, we have, although there are three individuals mentioned in this story, we actually have two types of people mentioned here. And the question is, which type are you like? Will you get involved? Uh, will you really do what needs to be done? The work that God has for us all in this world. It may be the work of helping someone who is in need. Or there's a whole lots of other things that are needed in the kingdom of God. And the question is, are you one who's willing to get involved in the doing of those things? Uh, the, the story of the Good Samaritan is a story about compassion, for sure. But you can generalize that story, broaden it out to suggest it's the story of being involved, uh, getting your hands dirty and doing the work for God. Which type are you? I, 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 would, I would say that in the religious world today and even in the Lord's church today, there are still those same two types of people. There are some who are ready to jump in, get involved, take an active part in whatever needs to be done. There's others who sort of want to keep all of those things at arm's length, who don't really want to, to be a part of the work that's being done. Two types. Again, two types. All right. Now you may really quibble with me because I want to, I want to use one more example. And in this case, there's not two men. There's ten individuals. I want to talk about the ten virgins. But here again, I'm saying it's really still the two-man concept in the sense that there's two types represented by the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25, beginning verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened to ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Watch therefore, for you know not, uh, for you know neither the day nor hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Jesus, you, we didn't read all of that parable. It's a longer parable. We didn't read all the parable of the ten virgins. But you know the story. And you understand the lesson. The lesson is about the need for preparation. Being ready. Because you do not know when the end may be, when judgment may come. That's the point. Uh, we're not preaching the imminent return of Jesus Christ because we simply don't know that and the Scriptures don't give us the information to be able to make such predictions. So we're not trying to predict the Lord's coming back today or tomorrow or the next day, next week, or for that matter, any time in the near future. We just don't know. We can't predict that. But the point is also that it could be today, tomorrow, next week, next month. It could be at any time. 
And that being the case, the story of the parable and the contrast of the prepared virgins versus the unprepared ones is to say, be ready all the time. If you don't know when something is important is going to happen, then you, you prepare yourself for it whenever it might happen. And so clearly this is a story about preparation. And we would simply ask a question, if we can understand that simple story of the ten virgins, then we ought to understand the need to be prepared. And we would ask, are you? Are you prepared for what is certain to come? Judgment from God. All right, look at that list. Now, I want to suggest to you that that does not exist the list, does not exhaust the list of two man stories Jesus told. You, you can probably think of several others. For instance, one that I almost included but didn't was the story of the prodigal son. Because the story of the prodigal son certainly contrasts the prodigal with his elder brother. And just over and over again, Jesus used that two-man concept. As we said at the outset, even people like the editors of the Wall Street Journal have learned that that really drives a point home when you see a contrast. And then you realize that you yourself are one or the other of the two types, right? And you can really learn from that. What do we learn from Jesus? Well, from the publican and the Pharisee, we learn we definitely need to be humble. From the father and his two sons, we need we learn that when we repent and go about to do what our father has told us, that's what is needed. So humility, repentance, gratitude for the forgiveness that God extends to us through his son, Jesus Christ. The wise and foolish builders teach that it's wise to do what you know is right and not to to do otherwise. If you know what the Lord has said and you're not doing it, you're like the foolish builder, the good Samaritan, get involved, the ten virgins, be prepared for what we know is in the future. It's not, you know, it's not maybe we're going to die and face the judgment. That's a certainty, right? That's a, uh, last time I checked, the, the statistics on people dying, 100%. You know, uh, 100% of people die. Now, at the end, there'll be a slight exception because a very tiny minority of the people who've ever lived will still be living when the Lord comes. But unless that happens to be us, we're going to die too. The statistics on death are pretty overwhelming. Death is certain. Judgment is coming. Are you prepared? We're going to sing a song of invitation. We'll just be asking you to make sure that your heart is right with God. If you're not a Christian yet, we beg you to obey the simple gospel plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, why would you stay in that situation? Come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song. A great day coming, a great day coming.